I'm Piers Linney and welcome to Rethinking Business, a new podcast brought to you by NatWest. Let's face it, the path to business success is rarely straightforward. That's why in this series, we're hearing from businesses who are thinking differently, disrupting industries, turning obstacles into advantages and bouncing back when things inevitably don't go to plan. My guest today is co-founder of a company offering a unique take on product personalization. After struggling to find a suitable gift for his friend's newborn baby, he took matters into his own hands by creating My First Years. This is the company that offers everything from personalized bathrobes to rocking chairs. Today, My First Years is the leading children's gifting website in the UK, and it's got fans across the globe, ranging from the royal family to Elton John and even the Kardashians. So it's a warm welcome to Daniel Price. Hi, Daniel. Hi, Piers. So as always, it's always helpful for you to just give us a bit of background with the backstory, and then we can take it from there. Sure. So I co-founded my first years uh, October 2010 with an old uh, childhood friend, Johnny Sitton. We grew up together. We knew each other since we were four years old, went to primary school, secondary school, and university together. And I was, at the time, buying into Nike ID personalized trainers. And at university, we both studied business studies. And actually during the course, one of the pieces of work we had to do was on the baby gifting industry, where we actually learned that there was 800,000 babies born a year in the UK. And on average, 12 gifts bought for every baby. So we kind of thought that's 10 million purchases just on that newborn gift. And then we had a gift to buy for a friend, a friend's baby. And we were just, we were looking around and there was nothing that seemed to be unique enough. So I said to Johnny, we've got to go for this. My first years, like this could be huge and personalization is going to be huge in the future. Let's create this personalization brand. So you had, so you did a business degree. Was intentional ways to start a business or was it, let's be a management consultant and then it suddenly came along? So from a young age, I always wanted to run my own business. When I was 13, my father passed away. And just growing up, I was always watching him and he almost, almost had a couple of things that almost came off. And he had a proper entrepreneurial flair. And after he passed away, I was just, it really drove me to kind of do something for myself one day in the future. So the business studies degree was always to help me get on that path. And did you see uh, babies and personalization? This is it. This is the big one. So you actually done the research, essentially. Yeah. So we yeah did a lot of research into it. And um, yeah, we were just asking everyone about it. And it seemed it seemed like it could be a winner. But the personalization angle was really tough to get off the ground. So let's explain the your products then. So when you hear about personalization, what does that mean? Is it just sticking somebody's name on something or is it a bit more than that? And do you buy the products and label them or are you manufacturing them? We're doing everything from the design of the product and then we're manufacturing the product and we sell a range of products and it goes from a newborn up to five years old already at the moment. And personalization for us, it, it basically... We're allowing the customer to kind of put their own stamp on it. And that could be anything from putting a name onto a product or putting a special message on. And we have a range of processes from embroidery to um, engraving. And we do, we've got seven different processes and we give the customer a really good choice. So I guess you didn't start making products. How did, it, how did you kick off? Yeah, so... Those early days, you know, the, the bedroom, what did that look like? Yeah, we well, yeah we started um, from each other's houses, and 
we we didn't have much money put into the business so we were just buying we actually made a contact in china quite early on so we bought like 50 units um, of our first pair of shoes and then we were speaking to suppliers in the uk where we'd buy five units at a time that wasn't my first year's branded but we'd kind of create a my first year's gift box to go in so it felt like the my first year's branded experience then that's how we got off the ground so you're starting off with um, other people's products, essentially. You're personalising them. So how did you evolve from that into your own products? Because I guess you have quite, I it 500 products. How did you get there? Because I can imagine that sometimes you may sell 10,000 of one and five of the other. And, you know, stock and inventory can be a huge issue. Yeah, so we always started, our USP was our personalised um, high-top trainers because no one could, at the time, personalise a ready-made pair of baby shoes because they were so small. So... Those were the ones that we always wanted to start my first years, like from the outset. So we bought, as I said, we bought 50, 50 units to start with um, from China. And then we really, as the sales started to increase, we were then able to actually just keep purchasing our high top trainers, which then went into sheepskin booties. And that particular range was always my first years from the beginning. And then we really, we tested out into other areas such as toys and bathrobes, hooded towels. And to start with, it wasn't well-known brands. We were just using UK suppliers where we were able to buy like 25, 50 products of. And then before we started selling each product, we had a number in mind that when we got to X amount of units per week, then we would push the button and go to the either the Far East or Turkey and design the product ourselves. So now you've got 120 people, is it? Yeah, 120 you've staff. Got, so yeah. there's 18 sort of logistics, warehousing and the... You know, picking and packing, I guess, and personalization for to the office. Yeah. So to explain there's a process logistics and how you've gone from, you know, you said your house to a warehouse in Northampton, is it? Yeah. Because that's a big, big change in reasonably short space of time. Yeah, definitely. We um so we started with each other's houses, putting the business plan together. And then we moved into a tiny office where we bought our first embroidery machine. And Johnny and I were embroidering ourselves and doing the gift packing and sending out. In fact, every time we got an order, we had a chin-up bar in the office. And every time we got an order, we did a chin-up. And we, we could be doing like three a week because we were getting hardly any orders. And we then, I said to Johnny, we've got to get a deal with a retailer or a uh, marketplace. So we launched with Not on the High Street. And that, from the beginning, bought us some volume um, where we were no longer able to do it ourselves. And then we had a contact um, to someone in Northampton and that's where we thought our distribution centre, let's move that to Northampton because we had big aims for the future and then we can build it out from there. So it sounds like, you know, you did your business degree and now you're talking about logistics and personalising. It sounds like you know what you're doing, but I'm pretty sure that in the last eight years, there's been a lot of things where things haven't gone to plan. And this this podcast about, you know, rethinking business and how you've overcome obstacles. So just looking back at just that period, purely in logistics and process, you know, what lesson did you learn? Listen to other people that have been there on the journey before us, especially in logistics. Like we had no idea what we were doing. We pinpointed from day one who we saw as good mentors or great people to learn from and then we just used our our ways to get in there and just get the right advice off people so the the know-how is exists the know-how is out there sometimes an entrepreneur you think you know best yeah and you're saying you go out there seek advice and listen yeah seek advice listen but because of what we were doing was different we we kind of used the advice we got 
and then we put our own take to it. Um, so my uh, co-founder Johnny, he's got an engineering background, so we use we use his mind. So it's process data driven. Yeah, right. Exactly. So we used his experience, his mind to get that going. Let's talk about how you've grown the business, you know, the revenue, because you've got a bit of a knack for getting in the door of celebrities, and uh, there's quite a few stories. So to share a few, because this is actually really important. I mean, they're, they're quite interesting stories, but actually, they can make it, they've made a huge difference to your growth trajectory, haven't they? Yeah, so I would turn up at um, The X Factor when Danny Minogue had her baby. I had a blanket um, saying, Mummy has The X Factor, and hand-delivered it to her, and then she loved it. That went into a magazine, and the newspapers picked it up. And I was like, this is great because the sales went up and then they stayed at that level. They didn't come back down. We gifted Elton John through Heart Radio and we put on a blanket for him. How wonderful life is now you're in the world. Like they really love that. And we realized that actually we've got something going here. We just need to find that angle into into that celebrity. Um, and then the Camerons had their baby. So I phoned up Downing Street and I said I was a family friend of the Camerons and I needed to drop off a gift. And I just we turned up. I went in and I hand delivered uh, to their assistant a gift on that saying the product of the perfect coalition. So that worked really, really well. And then when Prince George was born, we sent him some really nice gifts and we got a nice thank you card. But it was when Princess Charlotte was born that we sent her some gifts, but also for George as the older sibling. And that one of the gifts was our personalized dressing gown. And then one evening was out for dinner with family and I had 165 messages on my phone saying go on the Daily Mail website quick so I went on and I saw Prince George wearing our personalized dressing gown with President Obama which was like winning the PR lottery I mean, money can't buy that yeah that was just unreal and, and and what did that do to revenue and sales so very quickly we we sold out of the robe within seven minutes and we were selling we put it on for pre-order we were selling one every second so you're back in the car up to Northampton, back embroidering again yourself. Yeah, yeah, well, pretty <laughs> to much. fulfill the orders. Yeah, exactly. Um, but we also had to get, I got a few of the team members in that weekend to work out Prince George's wearing pyjamas and slippers as well. And we, it was our job to make sure that everyone, the world was talking about the dressing gown. So we actually noticed that we had 1800 articles written about that robe within 48 hours globally. And So how did you manage that just on that? Because... So it's all right getting you know good PR, but it's about what you do with it, monetize it. So on Dragon's Den, it's a good example. You had a huge 15 minutes of fame, but then what? I suppose when something that iconic in terms of the image goes on the Daily Mail website, everyone picks that up and then obviously puts that out there um, from People magazine to Us Weekly. But did your website go down and the processes all fall over? Did you learn a lot just from that volume coming in the door? Yeah, the website went down, but very, very um, short period of time. Um, and then when we got the robe up for pre-order, it kind of had stabilized by them. And what we were seeing, though, for the first time is because we hadn't had the money to spend on a U.S. customer um, marketing out there that they really, really like the product. Um, and that's where we spent the next couple of years gearing up and getting ready for big scale. So I'm assuming there was a step change in growth. Did that maintain that sort of momentum or did it fall back down again and what happened then in terms of your warehouse and your business generally because now, now you're on a different level and it's yeah. okay having processes and systems that are designed for a certain volume you suddenly you know receive a step change how did you handle that because often we weren't designed to to deal with that yeah so we were shocked with the volume we had to come in we were suddenly going to 24 hour days seven days a week production just to cope with the demand and then it took the sales volume 
up to it was up by about 20 percent but um on the month before and then it it actually maintained so and we found like we never looked back um from that moment but what we did is look forward and work out how can we actually do these numbers and scale this um with our personalization and that's when we thought about we need to we need to take investment on to invest properly into this technology so up until that point how would you funded the business because clearly the you know, growth if you want if you're growing beyond you know the ability of your profit if you have profit to fund it you're going to need external finance so you funded it yourselves initially yeah so we funded it ourselves initially um, with a small amount we had and then we actually hired an intern who who was excellent she was there for 2 months and I said to Johnny, let's take it everywhere to John Lewis pitches, Selfridges pitches. And at the end of the two months, she said, um, my great uncle would love to meet you. So we asked who it was. And she said, um, his name's Lord David Alliance. We met um, Lord Alliance. And so Lord Alliance, just explain a bit about who yeah, Lord so Alliance is. He's uh, a retail tycoon. He had uh, Coates Viella was his company um, in the 80s, 90s. And then he owns N Brown Group. And uh, in in Manchester, so there's based... a top tip there. Be nice to your intern because you never know. Yeah, exactly. And uh, that was that was really important. Um, she was lovely, but we made sure we took her everywhere with us. Um, and she learned the business. And then I guess he saw a bit of himself in us when he was younger and invested in us. And then we never looked back. And we 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 met a lot of people through him. When was this? This is before the sort of George Gate. Yeah, yeah. This was in um, at the beginning of 2012. Right, so it was quite early on then. Yeah, yeah, it was it was early on. Um, so that got you the warehouse, Northampton, the, the initial setup. Yeah, yeah, got us the initial setup, and we met a couple of um, angel investors through uh, Lord Alliance, and that helped us get to 2016, where we always knew we wanted to grow it to the next level. But it was that April when Prince George was wearing the robe that we then saw the next level or the next jump in volume. But that what came with it was the need for cash. But did you have a cash flow, a cash crisis then? Because suddenly, you know, the revenue is taking off. You're you're not set up to handle that kind of growth. What happened? Because that that can be where some businesses just fall over. The wheels just fall off. Yeah, I think it was actually more January to April that year, 2016, was more of a struggle because we we weren't getting the volume that we'd projected. So getting Prince George and that press and what happened there was the best thing for us. Oh, so it kind of filled the gap. Is it the other way around? Almost? Yeah, exactly. So it, it filled a huge gap um, where we actually then, cash flow, we were fine for the rest of that year, but we knew to go to the next level. That's when we needed bigger cash. So let's talk about the team. So it starts off you, Johnny, you know, you've grown up together. So you have that thing where you trust each other. You understand, you, I guess you understand what each of them are thinking almost. You don't need to worry about it. Yeah. But now you've got 120 people. So 118 other people who you didn't grow up with and... How have you found, you know, growing a business at that speed that's taken some time, admittedly, and managing people? Yeah, it's tough. It's so, first of all, Johnny and I, we, because we've known each other that long, uh, 28 years, we can say what we want to each other and we understand how different we are to one another. So we complement each other's skills very well. In terms of everyone else, we've got an excellent team and we've had people there along the journey that have been um, vital to our growth. But it's tough because you always you get overexcited at the beginning about an amazing CV and you always think because someone's got 20 years more experience than you in that particular company, you think, wow, let's get them in and it's a no-brainer they're going to do that to our company. And I think one of the biggest learnings for us is have confidence, have more conviction in what we know. Get get right, get the right people on board, but get the right people on board that share our vision, not 
coming into the business and saying this is what you need to do i think that's the biggest learning um but it's tough because we're not natural managing directors and we've never so how do you split your roles in i look over overall strategy and the brand growth side of things and johnny looks over the operations including like the that automation the technology and the finance side of the business so we complement each other really well and have you support each other or find external support for that that leadership function because you know leadership something that you can naturally be a leader but you can learn leadership and that's what the military that's what the military do they teach leadership and have you have you sort of evolved from two guys in the bedroom to leaders of a company that's you know now has institutional backing i guess a lot of winging it to be honest we know we've met a lot of people along the way that have given us advice um that have really helped us so you've accepted that fact which is important and you've actually reached out yeah yeah i guess like from a young age we both have always realized that the importance of listening and sometimes just not speaking just listening to people's advice and and taking it with a pinch of salt at times of course but learning how to become that leader there's the natural what everyone buys into at the beginning is the passion and then it's just that leadership where we've just learn on the job I guess because I always say when you're growing a business it can be there's two things actually one is you're the boss nobody's ever you're the bosses in your case no one's ever going to be as passionate about your business as you are and that can be really frustrating an entrepreneur because you you don't understand that well why aren't they and you think you've onboarded the right people and the other thing is is that prepare to be let down so have you been let down by people along the way and have you dealt with that we have been let down with people along the way but at different stages those people were all key to our growth. And without them, we definitely wouldn't be where we are today. So it's the right people at the right time. Yeah. Sometimes they're not, they're not an ongoing part of the team. Yeah, exactly. So it's acknowledging um, that it's okay to go from startup to, say, two, three million revenue. And there's going to be some people that love that stage. And then what I would say is sometimes you've got to be quicker to rip the Band-Aid off and actually acknowledge when, when you've come to that point. And there's going to be some people that love that three to 10 million um, revenue stage. And then there's going to be people that are great for for after that. But there's been, um, we've got a core team that have actually been there throughout. And those are the team that are the most passionate about the brand and the, and our, our mission, I guess. What are your tips for hiring then? So you've got your own personal experience. And I think this is different between from entrepreneur to entrepreneur. But what are your, to share your tips for hiring, given your experience? Yeah, I, I would say what's vital and even more important than a CV and someone's experience is are they going to be the right culture fit um, for the business? I would say get more of your existing team members in on that interview process. Never shock someone and just say, oh, so-and-so, this is so-and-so, meet them, they're starting today. I think it's you really want to make everyone feel included um, in the hiring process without making it um, without making it too much. But I feel that we, along the way, we've brought in some excellent people. But had we had we brought in the right um, people into that interview process, we would have identified who was right and who wasn't necessarily the right character along the way. And in terms of um, parting company with people, how have you found that? Because a lot of companies, they, they delay that and you think, oh, I don't want to go into a recruitment process, I'm too busy. And you can find that the wrong people in the wrong position for too long actually you know, destroys value very quickly. We, we've had it both ways where... We've seen that someone's not necessarily right, um, and we've we've had a conversation, um, and nine times out of ten, it's been a very nice conversation. It's been mutual, um, and then that's worked well. And then I normally my, my way of doing things is going on LinkedIn and um, kind of headhunting myself, and um, so that's what I like doing. And then 
on the flip side, we've also left it um, a year or two too long at times. And that's also, that's been the hardest thing um, to to deal with, I guess. Um, because also the rest of the company gets used to them being there and being around and it can be a blocker to growth. So I would say if you feel it's not right long term, you've got to just, you have to rip the bandaid off. You've raised £10 million now, isn't it? How have you found taking on that responsibility, that accountability in some ways to these external stakeholders now, as opposed to just yourself and Johnny? Yeah, so it is um, it is obviously a slightly different feeling to your own money going in and then the um, angel investment stage. But ultimately, it's anyone that we've got on board and that have come on board with us, we'd like to think are there for us as much as we're there for them um, going towards the same goal. Um which is growing this business to the to its ultimate value. And I think we just think about that the whole time and then we'll be aligned with our board. Obviously, taking on external investment uh, means that you're going to less of your business going forward. And how have, you, how have you dealt with that? And how did you negotiate as equity stakes? Because it is a negotiation. Sometimes you might have the, the right investor that can be want too much, have an investor that's not quite the right investor, but you can better get a better deal. So have you sort of balanced that over the years? I think we've we've never looked to the better deal. We've always, in terms of short-term thinking, um, what we've always looked at is who's the right long-term investor and who's who believes in us and who can acknowledge the value that we've built today and can see the potential growth. And I think that's where we've been really fortunate um, from the Lord Alliance days to are um, VC investors who just, they believed in us and backed us at the right value at that time. And you've seen the, the capital as a way of ensuring you can grow at the pace you want to go. You haven't worried too much, obviously you have, but not to some extent, but haven't worried too much about dilution. It's about moving the business forwards at the pace you want to. Yeah, I think that was really important to us um, because we'll never, we'll never drop below um, a percentage um, of ownership that we're demotivated, you know, about growing the business. So we always saw from the beginning that we'd rather have a smaller piece of the pie, but grow it. And we're going to hopefully do well for ourselves with this long term. But also the learning along the way uh, is immense. So we've never really worried about the dilution. So if you'd had money from some faceless investor that has added no value at all, so you know, it wasn't Lord Alliance or institutional backers who can help you with uh, the right networks and support, where would you be? If, if we just six years ago, someone says ten million pounds, off you go. And it's a bit more question about the support, really, and the value that adds. Yeah, the support is everything. I think the money sitting there with no support um, or advice is dangerous, in my opinion, because. You can deploy that cash in so many ways that's just not right for the business. And of course, along the way, we've we've spent money on things, we've invested in things that haven't necessarily worked out, but you're always going to do that and that's learning. But we've always had our board to ask for advice and that was just generally there for us and helped us deploy that cash in the right way. So I think it's, it's dangerous to get that level of cash when, when you haven't got that help. So you're saying don't just go for the money. Try and find a balance between the money, obviously, because you need that, but the right people sitting behind that money to make sure they're aligned with you and it's not just a financial transaction. Definitely. And also acknowledge your weak points so that when you're looking for that clever money, you're getting people on board that can help you in your areas where you're not so strong. This podcast is about rethinking business, and you've clearly been doing that. You found a niche in personalised um, children's products. 
But what, let's talk more about the problems you face because we've talked about, you know, people, finance, uh, logistics as well. But if there were three things that stick in your mind as if I'd only known this, what I know today, that wouldn't have happened, what would they be? Yeah, so the first thing is at the beginning, we were we launched this brand, two guys with no idea. And we just knew we wanted to work for ourselves. And we Googled gift box supplier UK and we got a, a cream gift box that we put together ourselves and we put a silver foil sticker on with a, an original logo and we thought we were cool. We've got a great brand here. And I went on LinkedIn and I approached the buyer from Harrods, set up a meeting and we actually, I realized we didn't have the product either. It wasn't the right product. So we got samples from a few different suppliers, put it in this gift box, turned up and they basically laughed at us and said, we're never going to be getting into Harrods. Um, we haven't got a brand. This is cheap. This isn't the right, you know, it's not right. Um, and I think if I would have known then, luckily enough, we turned that around completely. We rebranded very quickly after that. And we, How did you get the meeting? Most got, people can't get the meeting. Yeah, I got the meeting. Where I, I'm, That's my thing, I guess, is getting in with people or thinking a bit outside the box and how to get someone initially to like us. Um but you weren't prepped properly. You but weren't, we weren't, you weren't fully baked, really. Yeah, yeah. I think it was more the idea of getting into Harrods or even getting the meeting with Harrods, which uh, I got a bit overexcited about. And if I would have known that was going to happen then, obviously it did turn around, but it was a massive risk. They could have never spoken to us again. Yeah, absolutely right. And yeah. so I would say just get your proposition right. Uh, this is probably obvious, but get your proposition right before you go to anyone like that. I think about being an entrepreneur is, and I'm, I'm still like, you're impatient. You want everything to happen in your know, days, weeks, not even months actually, thinking of weeks at that, that point in time. And it can be very hard to sort of just take a deep breath and sit back and say, right, what do I need to approach this meeting properly? Yeah, exactly. So that's one great example. And give me an example of something else we've just thought, Dan today wouldn't have done that. I think at times along the journey, when we were in the uh, angel investor stage, leaving it very late to start thinking, actually, we should we should do a, a quick round of And funding. the point there is it can take a lot longer to raise money than you think it does. Yeah, so it, it can take a lot longer and usually does. But also, I would say, go for more. Again, probably obvious, but go for more than you think you need. And I'm saying that because if you go for an amount that you think you need, you may be com you may have to compromise the business um, short-term decisions, which long-term affects the brand, the value of the brand. I've done it myself. Do you think you're being clever by raising just enough? Things take longer than you think they're going to, they cost more than you think they're going to. And the point is, is that when you run out of money and you're trying to raise money, you often have to take money in that sort of rush on terms you wouldn't necessarily want to. So overall, across the whole funding horizon, you take more of a hit than you should have done. Yeah, exactly. And and then also who's we're majorly protective of the brand. And I think you never want to just try and get extra revenue by doing things that you wouldn't normally want to do for that brand, whether it's heavy discounting or whatever it is. So just take your time with it. If you had to do that, though, if you find yourself yeah, there's... looking at each other thinking, oh, God, we've got a discount in this now, just to get through the payroll. Yeah, yeah, definitely. There's been, uh, there has been times over the years uh, where we've had to do that. And I think it's just about doing, doing it in the right way. But planning is key. Third thing I've uh, I've touched on um, staff before, but I think it's just getting people on the journey that believe in you and that believe in your passion and that are all about coming along that exciting journey or what I always say in interviews, it's the uh, Aladdin's magic carpet ride with us. Um, 
and they're not me, 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 I, I. How have you weeded out the ones that you do get these um, employees that, oh, I want to join a startup, I've got a nice big corporate job and I can do this for a few years and take the risk and they join you and they're not really right, they're not really enjoying it, but it looks good on the CV and, you know, you, you really, they shouldn't be there. Yeah, and it's very difficult to, to tell in interviews. Um, I think our questions have got better over the years, but it's normally within the first 12 weeks where you can see actually... This is yeah CV. This has CV all over it and isn't necessarily right. But I think bringing the other members of the team that you really trust, no matter what, whether it's an irrelevant to that person's like job or role, they understand what our culture is and getting a second or third opinion is everything. We're nearly out of time. This has been fascinating. Uh, but I want to get some final tips for our listeners. And one thing that always interests me is technology. So you're personalising your current product range, but where do you see this going? And Because obviously that is a another opportunity for growth. Yeah, so for now, it's we've always focused on personalising our product range. We get a lot of businesses coming to us because they know the quality and also the level of detail with the personalization. And of course, how quickly we scale, they're always asking for us to fulfill for them. And for now, we haven't gone down that route, kind of like that B2B route. We just focused on the brand, but never say never to that route, I guess. For us, we just got to keep developing our systems um, to stay ahead of the game. So you may end up personalizing for retailers or um, any, any number of B2B partners, potentially? Potentially down the line. Um, but it, the the key is really is focus and we never want to get involved with that if we're going to then be competing with ourselves and do it very well for another company. And what do you see down the line in terms of um, personalization? Well, what is there? Because right now you've got seven processes, is it? Is, yeah. is there an eight? I think it's more about redefining what personalization means to us. And as we go to the older ages, is actually looking at going into, I guess, what more what we call customization and letting, whether it's the monogrammed initials, whether it's different applique designs that they can choose from, I think it's redefining what personalization means as we get older and go through the journey of their life. If you could go back uh, six years to the older, probably less wise Dan and tell yourself one thing, give yourself one piece of advice, what would it be? It would be that this brand is, you're the parent of this brand and it's up to you to decide its fate. So whatever direction you want it to go in, like there's there's a certain amount of customer research and certain amount of advice or input your team can give you. But actually what everyone's looking for, including the customer, is actually a bit of vision and direction about what the brand actually stands for. So there's have conviction with who we are and what we want to be, as opposed to getting a 100 opinions of what they think we should be. Do I talk about the... The known knowns, the known unknowns, the unknown unknowns. And I think, you know, as an entrepreneur, you know, you can you can work out the known unknowns, try and work them out. But the unknown unknowns are the things that you don't know. And that's why you're an entrepreneur. And, you know, any decision, I've seen this in many investments, almost any decision is better than indecision. Yeah, completely. Well, Dan, it's been fascinating having you in and hearing about how you've built my first years. Um, good luck for the future. I'm sure you're going to crack the US. Uh, thanks very much. Thank you very much for having me here. That's all for this episode of the Rethinking Business podcast from NatWest. Thanks to Daniel Price, founder of My First Years. It was great to speak with him. To discover more about the topics we've discussed today, business insights, local events, and stories from businesses facing the same challenges as you, search NatWest Business Hub or go to natwestbusinesshub.com. 
I'll be back in a week's time with our next episode, so make sure you hit subscribe if you haven't already. But until then, from me, Piers Linney, thanks for listening.